This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 71 of Ancient Office Hours. This week, I spoke with my friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan Winterman, an Egyptologist and academic administrator for ancient studies at UCLA. Dr. Winterman has worked in Egypt for many years, most notably as an epigrapher with the Epigraphic Survey in Luxor and with the Tel Edfu Project before joining UCLA as a lecturer in Egyptology in 2018. While his research and teaching are grounded in the cultures of ancient North Africa, he is interested more broadly in the construction and maintenance of kingship and power across ancient, pre-modern, and contemporary worlds. In this episode, we chatted about how Egypt is a perfect fit for interactive pedagogy in classrooms, his work in making ancient Egyptian inscriptions great again, and about his hopes for UCLA's new Institute for the Study of Global Antiquity in shaping the future of ancient studies. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star rating and review us on Apple or Spotify. You can also subscribe to our Patreon, as this will allow us to reach more people and make more exciting ancient world content. Enjoy! Thanks for joining me, Jonathan. I'm super excited about this, but let's start you off with a nice little softball question, which is, how did young Jonathan get into Egyptology? When was, like, the bolt of lightning strike that's like, I love this? Mm. I think it was a slow burn, I would say. Um, Because I I went through my prerequisite dinosaur phase first. And I then, I I, I was always interested in the ancient world and kind of uh, this kind of very like long lost, long, long ago human existence, obviously after the dinosaurs um, now. But but it really, I'd say it really kind of took off um, in fourth grade we were introduced as part of our core curriculum to ancient egyptian culture myth religion art um and i remember just like having a blast like i remember i never thought i was good at anything until i started like drawing ancient egyptian stuff and um you know reading ancient egyptian myths um and again that's a my like my the scholar in me now knows that that's a complicated category but back then i was like very happy to to enjoy just consuming uh quote-unquote myths um 
And then uh, that kind of instilled this love in me, I, I'd say. And then in uh, high school, I remember we were reading, you know, we had this kind of standard world history textbook, which, uh, you know, very much presented this teleological view of human history of like, basically everything in the past was just to get to us. And there was a chapter on Egypt. And I just remember reading it. It was like five pages or something like that. And and, uh, you know, and, and in fairness to the textbook, this was then an equitable presentation because essentially every area of the globe got five pages. Um, but I just remember thinking that this was woefully inadequate. And so, and then reading it too, I remember just thinking, well, this doesn't seem kind of to jive with what I remember from my more in-depth reading. Like my, as a fourth grader, I almost felt like I got a more in-depth understanding of this culture um, than, than the textbook is giving me. And you can tell here I'm, you know, I was uh, an early, well, actually kind of insufferable student. Um, and, and so that's very much a part of, of, of that. Um, but then I uh, decided to go and do reading um, by myself and learned kind of the complexity of ancient Egyptian linguistics um, and religion in particular. And from there, there was kind of no going back. I, I started I, I knew I wanted to be an archaeologist. I was lucky enough that my parents perhaps mistakenly supported me in this endeavor uh, and didn't pressure me to go into a more feasible career. And uh, then I got, when I, when I started really seriously taking courses on the ancient Egyptian language, I decided archaeology. And then I had a few archaeological experiences that were really fun, but uh, perhaps a bit too intense for, for delicate little old me. So then I decided that actually philology was going to be the direction that I wanted to go. In, and I just fell in love with the Egyptian language. And that's kind of was that's my foundational myth. I think I definitely got into it later. Um, I usually start crediting people around sixth grade. And I usually say it's a sixth grade class. Um, my teacher was like super interactive. And so she had everyone like make like a cute little DIY, like Egyptian, like, like, clothing thing and you could wear it to class she was literally like no like make an entire outfit like wear like a tunic type thing and you can wear sandals and beads and some sixth grader brought in like an, a legit headdressy crown thing and she was like okay um but yeah so and then like everyone everyone got to choose their own like egyptian name and each of the little table pods of students got a different city name uh we picked it from like a super generic book uh what did I, I i it was like honestly i think it was as boring as Aminet or something like that i was like sure Aminet. it is and then later when i got into assassin's creed i was like hey look Aminet. because egypt is, egypt lends itself better to playing dress up this is actually something interesting i'm sure we'll come back to but Egypt lends itself to consumption at all levels and at the, the kind of grammar school level by playing dress up because you basically all you need, like you said, is a white tunic, ideally linen, but really just kind of white clothing and then some jewelry and beads and you've got it. Like you don't need kind of complicated textiles or, you know, really elaborate uh, hairdos or anything like that. Um, you really just need kind of things that every every grammar school student probably has access to in some way, shape, or form. Oh, yeah. And at that age, I feel like you're still young enough that you still kind of have your costumes for Halloween and dress up. And so somebody like had a plastic uh, crook and flail that they brought in. 
And like my teacher completely endorsed whatever you've got, bring it in. I want to see it. And it, it was so great. Um, so yeah, that's, that's where I got into it. And I think that's like the gateway, honestly, for most young kids. Cause I definitely was like, I'm going to be an Egyptologist. There's no doubt about this. I will do this with my life. Um, and it didn't turn out that way, but it was fine. But did you find it hard to find like good materials beyond just like your basic, basic, you know, kids books that are the light version, quote unquote, of things when you were still pretty young, like before, I mean, even in high school, actually. You know, it's an interesting question because of course this is like, it's, it's really a question that one can't reflect on whether they found good materials before you know what good what the difference between good materials and bad materials are um, or is. Uh, so for example, but it's, yeah, this is a really complicated question. I would say, so, so there were kind of two sides of my early encounters with Egyptological literature, or shall we say learning about ancient Egypt. One was, I remember just going to like Barnes and Noble and just grabbing and like going to their ancient history section and just grabbing like any ancient Egypt book they had. Of course, this is going to be things like Budge's translation of the Book of the Dead, which for for listeners, if they're not aware who Budge is, like he is like we're talking late 1800s, maybe early 1900s, but translation and work that are that are just so out of date by this point. But these books are still being sold um, in, in bookstores and in museum shops. Um, and, and, you know, they're not, they're not, I'd say problematically wrong, but they're just not correct anymore. And so that was the one hand. So I, I feel like even if it wasn't the most cutting edge scholarship or the best scholarship, it was still quote unquote, like official sources, sources that one could cite in a paper. Growing up at the kind of the, the early days of the internet, um, I remember doing a lot of Google searching on hieroglyphs and language and monuments, plans of temples like Karnak, things like that. And I remember that every, I remember every webpage would be slightly different. Um, but at the same time, I did not really recognize at the time that there was kind of one officially sanctioned group of knowledge that was legitimate and that everything outside of that was illegitimate. That only came later, actually, with uh, the indoctrination into the kind of higher ed system, the academic community. Um, but of course, you know, this is also still before the days of ancient aliens. There were some alien stuff. Of course, I didn't really engage with that. It, the landscape has changed, I will say, that the discussions that we're having now about legitimate versus illegitimate, uh, when I was perhaps just based on my inexperience and also based on the the availability of the discourse um this was not as much of a and at least it did not seem as as great of an issue as it does to me today which is good because we like to see that we're moving forward and i mean honestly i say this all the time the amount of just like material on any ancient culture honestly that kids have these days I would have loved to have these when i was growing up like i want all these resources and podcasts and like all the things, but, um, I mean, obviously you're a bit older than I am, but even when I was a kid, it was, it was pretty hard to like find stuff that wasn't, you know, just made more for like super general younger audience. Um, I think like the only book that I really had that I just reread and reread was, uh, like Dan Aykroyd's, um, Kingdom of the Dead or something like that. It was like half picture book, half informational, like, on mummies and 
like a short introduction to the important pharaohs. Um, yeah, it was hard to find resources. The interesting thing, though, and the thing that I that helped me a lot, and that can help people that are interested in kind of becoming more fluent in in official academic discourse. One of the early decisions that I think really served me well was, especially when I started applying to colleges, when I knew that this was kind of what I wanted to do, I started just emailing people out of the blue and just saying, hi, this is who I am. I might be interested in applying, but like, do you have any advice? And inevitably, part of the advice that I'd receive would be one or two book recommendations. And so that's really how I started to expand my literacy in official literature. And again, it was never portrayed to me as these are legitimate sources, what you were previously interacting with are, are questionable or or not illegitimate. It was just kind of my, my interest just evolved and grew as I grew. So it felt very natural. No, that's a great, that's a great piece of advice. Cause I think, um, it's kind of scary, right. As like a high schooler. And you're like, why would I like, why would anyone answer me, my email as like a little teensy high schooler? Um, but I guess, yeah, that's one thing that people don't realize, which is like professors actually really don't mind and probably welcome people emailing them, showing an interest. Um, I mean, one of the barriers to me going on and actually doing Egyptology was, you know, there's not a lot of programs that offer undergrad degrees in, in Egyptology and also the language requirements. Um, when you were going in and, and researching what to do when you got to college, did you go in knowing you have to pick up German and French and that's before any of the ancient languages? And like, if you did know this, how on earth did you, did, were you able to start one or both before going in? Or did you just do what most people do? Like you get into the college and you're like, okay, I guess I'm going to pick up like three or four new languages. Yeah, no, again, because I had emails so many people. Um, and actually some of the best, uh, the best feedback that I got was from people that had been in academia or were academic adjacent, but are now kind of the administrators for academic programs. This is where I really not only got some recommendations, but also got suggestions of, well, how's your French and how's your German? And I was kind of like, oh, well, I, I was taking French at the time. Luckily, um, that was kind of the language that was offered in my, my grammar school. And then I stuck with, uh, stuck with it in high school. Uh, but then because I had gotten this feedback, uh, day one of freshman year, I was in a German class. Ooh, that's intense. Oh, man. So did you start? Actually, would you recommend starting with one if you have some kind of training from high school and in, in, in the other one um, and then slowly adding on or because I know people who had to start with one and then sort of slowly tack them on and then I knew other people who were like no I'm just going to jump into it and we're taking like three language classes at one time and I was like how do you not want to like die so unfortunately I'm not sure how much help I'm going to be here just because as the technology continues to advance and as we also continue to reflect on the way that our discipline has been practiced um, a lot of the kind of fundamental or foundational skills that we that were once assumed to to be constant and that would continue forever into the future are now being questioned so for example if you are a say you are a 14 year old that's really interested in Egyptology, I have no idea what the academic landscape in terms of the background that you're you know, that you'll need will look like in ten years. Um, so uh, yes, I would say don't overburden yourself. Uh, don't put too much pressure on yourself. This is always kind of this leads to academic burnout. 
and it's always it's it's always a mistake, but it's it's also a, an understandable mistake. Um, but yeah, I would say pick one, pick either French and German, and feel comfortable with it, and then slowly start adding the other one in. Um, but at the same time, if you're someone that says, you know what, I would much rather learn Egyptian Arabic, then learn Egyptian Arabic. Then if that if you think that that's the way forward for you, then then maybe that is the way forward for you. And maybe again, as Google Translate continues to get better. Maybe having such an in-depth knowledge of French and German is not going to be as critical anymore. I would still recommend taking some of it, uh, but um, maybe not to the same level that... No, and I think that's also really good because when I first thought I might become an Egyptologist, I did actually, one of the first questions was, should I learn not just Arabic, but the Egyptian dialect? And at the time, people were like, oh no, that's unimportant compared to other things. Just forget about that. You'll like, it's not useful. Um, and I think it's kind of just a reflection of the times and realizing that we do actually want to work with our Egyptian colleagues on their history, that it's becoming like better, more accessible. And actually people are being encouraged to take Egyptian Arabic. Um, cause I did hate the fact that people told me that it was unimportant, um, when I wanted to take it. So I didn't take it. Though of course there are still barriers there because essentially it's very hard to find a course just in Egyptian Arabic. A lot of times, especially at the university level, you have to take three years of modern standard Arabic, and then you'll take a dialectical Arabic, but then you'll take Kyrene. And then if you work in the south of the country, as I did at Luxor, you'll quickly find that they speak an entirely different dialect. So it, it's it's kind of, I think the best option, if you're interested in Arabic, the best option to learn it is to go to Egypt and, and experience Egypt as a study abroad program or you know, as a, you know, if you're able to kind of get a part-time job or as a tourist or something like that, just go to Egypt. That's, I'd say, one of the most important things if that's the track that you're really interested in going down. Yeah, no, I would agree. Um, also, just go to Egypt because Egypt is cool. But okay, so so once you got to college, how did you go about figuring out like what to actually specialize in? Because there's so much history. There's so many different interesting topics. And I feel like people still only really want to talk about the really big, broad ones. Like, I think the most common things I still hear are pyramids, Tut, Amarna period, like like these really broad brushstrokes. So, um, yeah, how did you narrow that down? Yeah, so I, I, I would say the best advice that I have in, in doing this is to follow your passions. Because I think a lot of times, and looking back on it, I did not realize that this was happening, but I always had a passion for political theory and the development of complex societies, complex political societies, how religion is enmeshed into this and um, kind of how power then becomes unequally distributed in these hierarchies and in these networks. And it's funny because, but so I say that and then you can kind of see the trajectory of my career. But if I tell you, Lexi, that I entered graduate school as a pre-dynastic archaeologist, then you see quite a big shocking difference between that field of specialization and then my current field of specialization, which is religious hieroglyphic inscriptions of the New Kingdom through late and Ptolemy. On the surface, they appear to be entirely unrelated, but actually there is kind of a, a continuity in the way that I approach um, that I approach my, my studies of kind of later Egyptian history, later meaning like, you know, 1500 BCE through, you know, the, the Roman period. Um, but I'm still doing it with that lens to understand political power, to understand uh, the development of structures political structures that we still live with today um i don't know 
I mean, I feel like you could basically, that would be like a really valid answer for how you went about the process of just figuring how you wanted to specialize. Because I mean, I think it's completely true. Yeah, just follow the thing you want. Don't think so much in terms of specific people or time periods. I think it's valid to say, well, what's the the broader theme you like and uh, how can that apply to different periods? It's hard when talking to Egyptologists, I, and I find myself always encountering this very barrier because I have a propensity to always say, well, the older something is, the cooler it is, so I wouldn't want to do the later period stuff. And then I have to realize that, wait, I'm a classicist, and literally everything that I study during the classical period is like so late for Egypt anywhere that you're like you mu- you guys must just be like oh that's cute you guys are babies you know it's funny though lexi because i was the same way at one point where the earlier it was the cooler it was and i think that was because i always figured that we understood the later things we knew things about those we we had a grasp of what was going on but it was the earlier stuff that was the more because it was more distant more removed this was more unknown there was more kind of uncertainty and i think one of the lessons that i've learned not only academically like especially like how many egyptologists can understand or are familiar with religious texts that are fundamental for how we understand egyptian religion of all periods but that date to the roman period and are written in roman hieroglyphs and then of course reflecting you know over the past you know decade of of the history of this own country um, or, or this this country, when we think about just kind of the things that we thought we understood about how uh, society worked or how our political structures worked or kind of um, how the, the, the system was catering towards different populations within the United States, we're quickly realizing, especially as someone that grew up in privilege, that, you know, this is this is not the case at all. Like, and like, actually, we don't understand the contemporary world. So if we don't understand the contemporary world, then... It, it kind of it kind of levels the playing field. It doesn't mean that the the earliest origins of civilization or cultures are, of course, not valuable. This is not what I'm saying. It's just saying that then we actually know equally as little about every aspect of our existence, whether it be ancient or modern. I mean, I think it's such a valid point that we do often it gets lost in translation. I mean, I think every field has its certain time periods and and specialists that we make fun of, right? I mean, in classics, we're always going on. We're always banging on about how those Byzantinists, man, what they do is just, oh, so boring. We know Byzantium. Like, why would we do that when we can study, you know, Bronze Age collapse or something? But yeah, I think you're right. No, there is this tendency that the older it is, we just find it more mysterious because, oh, it's so... um, I mean, I don't know. We we have this attitude of like, oh, it's so old, so it must be so mysterious and so just like complicated or, or something like that. Um, yeah, we're we're so interested in origins, um, origins really, and like this is something. These are questions that I'm of course grappling with now as part of my work with global antiquity. But we're so interested in kind of the the first occasion. The the, the Egyptians would call it the septepi. Um, so kind of. The, the first time that something ever happened and kind of how that creates meaning still in the present um, or how it, it should create meaning still in the present and then how afraid we are to lose that memory of that first time or how threatened we are if someone questions it or changes it. Um, but again, th- these are entirely artificial constructions. Um, the more and more I, I learn about uh, kind of, you know, early human cultures and read ethical philosophy and uh, kind of also just 
learn more about animals. Like, I don't really think there's a clear difference between when humans started being humans and stopped being animals. Um, you know, I think there are kind of things we could talk about in that regard, but really there's, there's no really for one firm origin to any of this kind of connected expanse of, of history that we are looking at here. And usually when we try to focus in on something that's good, it's good that we're interested in certain topics, but don't get too into it because then I think that's where problems arise. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, and one thing I did want to turn to a little bit is since you work with inscriptions, um, it's, Funny because I feel like as many people as I know in academia who do things like inscriptions, it's still kind of one of those things that I feel like more on the general public side, right? Um, People know that people exist to look at these things, but it's considered sometimes one of the more boring aspects. Like, oh, you're not looking at mummies. Okay, well, then what are you doing with your life? Or, you know, oh, you're not studying... Um, you know, ancient climate change and, you know, how it influenced migration patterns, then that's boring. So what was it about inscriptions that really caught your eye? And um, is is there a certain inscription that you've come across that you particularly love that you can illuminate people on? So this is a great question. Um, I think I'd start by saying I never felt felt the same backlash as someone that was interested in, because especially as someone that's interested in a hieroglyphic text. If you're interested in Greek epigraphy, then maybe you might get other people that say, well, why? Um, Like there's there's other kind of cooler things. Um, But because they're hieroglyphs, because there's still an aesthetic dimension to them, and again, people don't understand how the hieroglyphic system works. So a lot of times people think this is code or um, kind of that there's spiritual meaning embedded in the, the glyphs, which to some extent there is, um, but not usually in the same kind of alchemical way or hermetic way that uh, that might be the most titling. So I, I would say that that I never really encountered uh, that lack of interest or kind of people questioning why I was interested in hieroglyphic inscriptions. But um, one of the kind of the things that I've been reflecting on these days is how a lot of the glorification of this type of interest is really tied into a colonial narrative. Um, So this idea of this is so interesting because you're going to a foreign land and uh, you can do things that the indigenous population can't do. And they're assisting you by shining light on the the surface of the temple. um, And that this, you're then kind of parsing out the world to then feed back to the indigenous population and then increase kind of the the larger degree of rationalization uh, that exists in the world that is somehow measurable and, of course, steadily increasing in the the, the right direction. Um, So that's kind of more of the thing that I've needed to push back against and kind of what we actually do and the, the... the kind of the purpose and the function of our of, of my interests and kind of why I'm why I'm interested in looking at these texts. In terms of my favorite that I really liked, I'd say was when I was working at the Epigraphic Survey of the University of Chicago. Um, I worked there for two years, and one of the projects that I started my first year, finished my second year, was a collation. So an epigraphic collation. So essentially, I'm checking and looking for additional elements on the inscription of a facsimile drawing that has been created by our very talented artists was a description of Penugium I, who's not a king, but a high priest, occasionally styled himself as king, but again, this is a complicated question. Um, So this would have been right around, I think, 1050-ish BCE. 
Um, and it was this very small little text at the bottom of uh, the small temple of Medina Habu in Luxor. And um, it was cryptographic. And this kind of really made me fall in love with, shall we call it, enigmatic hieroglyphic writing, sportive hieroglyphic writing, cryptographic hieroglyphic writing, and the immense flexibility that the hieroglyphic language or script provides people to express really complex theological ideas in ways that transcend our definition of what writing is. So because you because there's an individual dimension, there's so much more that you that you can communicate with these symbols, with these characters. Um, and I really kind of fell in love with with this type of inscription. And uh, it's still actually this inscription continues to inform my work uh, to these days and kind of um, because the text that I was looking at was paired with a standard non enigmatic text in normal hieroglyphic writing on the north side of the temple. And so you kind of have this dichotomy between the hidden and the revealed, which then you could kind of extrapolate into kind of the rational, the approachable, and the the mythic or the irrational, the unapproachable, and kind of the interplay of these two elements together in the Egyptian religion, I think is very unique. And I think the balance that the Egyptians developed between this idea, especially in in the, the character of the god Amun-Ra, uh, was actually critical and one of the, the major ways in which Egyptian religion survived and was able to adapt and kind of, but able to change and adapt, but still be recognizable um, for, I'd say, you know, at least kind of 2000 years. No, that's so cool. Although it got me thinking and uh, I I promised myself I wouldn't ask, but now I'm like, no, no, whatever. I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, Did Egyptians also do kind of like, um, what are they called? Uh, Like the, the curse tablets that the Romans had, like, you know, in HBO Rome, when you see she, um, one of the characters wants like to curse Julius Caesar for scorning her. So she has her just her little metal tablet and she's like putting in her curse. Do, do we have that for little inscriptions? So we have it for the Greco-Roman period, sir. I'm trying to think. We like, I don't think we have lead curse tablets before then. And of course the Greco-Roman period, this is now kind of a, we're, we're dealing with a pan- Mediterranean pan North African kind of cultural setting. So these ideas are there. There's these ideas have spread everywhere. There's no kind of saying, well, this was a Roman idea, this was a Greek idea, this was an Egyptian idea. They're all meshed together. They're all entangled. But uh, we do have we have uh, earlier we have execration figures. So we have kind of little. They're crude, I don't want to say crude, but they're kind of roughly shaped statues that have curse formulas and names written on them, sometimes specific, sometimes more just general ethnoi, and then these would have been broken. Uh, So that was kind of the, perhaps the earlier equivalent. But one of my favorite examples of these later lead tablets uh, that you mentioned is there was a, what looks like a curse lead tablet accompanied with a female who had been with her hands. So it's a female figure whose hands were bound behind her back. And she has metal spikes driven into her eyes, her mouth, her, I think her anus, her, her, you know, sexual organs, her stomach. And you're like, oh my God, what did this woman do? What is happening? And you read the inscription and it's a love magic. It's a magical inscription for love. I am binding the legs of this person. I am like penetrating the, 
the mouth of this person so that they love no one else. What a what a bait and switch. I would feel so bait and switched, but also I'm like, oh my gosh, the ancient Egyptians were literally playing with like little voodoo dolls. Though, as you know, I think we've all experienced at this point in our lives that love can be a curse. So there is some some uh, truth to this in, in some kind of philosophical way. I don't want to get too much into it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay. I mean, they did have a valid point um you know egyptians you to you um don't want to like mess with your mojo but yeah so i mean since you do have an a, a, an interest in ancient egyptian religion which i mean let's be honest though everyone who's like into egypt at some point is like yeah i like ancient egyptian religion it's sounds pretty cool but i can see where that especially as a as a topic would get really mixed up in the sort of colonialism um colonialist patterns i mean because do you find that you know when you tell people or talk about oh yes i i have an interest and i like to study ancient egyptian religion um does that immediately just get rolled into oh how exotic and they're so mysterious and they had all those animal headed gods like oh creepy you know i will say conversations tend to go one of two ways either they go that direction immediately but it's always with the pyramids it's always like oh well then you know the true reason that the pyramids were constructed and i've heard then from there i've heard every possible permutation of aliens weird kind of racial hypotheses um you know, everything down that rabbit hole. But it's nice because the second I, I, I hear it, I just kind of, and you know, it's not, it's not my business. And also when, when you're dealing with someone that has these beliefs, you're not going to convince them. That's one thing that I learned very early on. So I'm just as friendly as possible, but then I just try to kind of get out of the conversation as quickly as, as possible as well. But then the other side is that actually a lot of people, when I tell them this, it's not this kind of, oh, how exotic. But really, there is a strong desire to learn. And of course, yes, you can tell them stories uh, about, you know, about uh, the weird things that happened, the contendings of Horus and Seth. Uh, you can tell them kind of the different, the, the sexual ways in which the universe was created. And these are, of course, entertaining and uh, stimulating. Largely, these are not, uh, like, the, 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 the follow-ups are never kind of, oh, that's so exotic, but it's more of, well, how did this system actually work? And can you explain to me, well, if they believe this and believe that, and it was so contradictory, how how was that possible? You know, how can people hold wildly different stories of the creation of the universe at the same time in their heads? And I think that's kind of the most productive and enjoyable conversations that I do get. Into. Oh, that's so fun. And I'm I'm glad that for as many weird, creepy conspiracy people who say that the pyramids are, you know, giant grain silos or something crazy like that. Um, I'm glad that you do find yourself having a, a good amount of real serious um, conversations with people who, who take a very serious interest in it. And I think that's, that's a perfect segue to bounce us on to, I know you do stuff with pedagogy and teaching about ancient Egypt. Um, you know, did that interest kind of stem from these conversations that you would have, or you were like, actually, this is quite fun to, you know, explain to people who are really interested and really curious to learn, or did did you always kind of enjoy pedagogy um, and then just hope, branch into that? I think I've always enjoyed talking to other people about topics that I was passionate about, um, especially as someone that was passionate about these things from a young age and someone that was also a nerdy young kid. I think you learn very quickly when you see someone that has a similar interest. You're like, 
yes, we can we can talk about this, and it's not like football or something. And you want to you want to nerd out with me on this. Um, so I think that's probably the earliest. Uh, that this is probably the foundation of of my interest in kind of communicating with others. But I think growing up and kind of as my interest in ancient Egypt matured, and also as I was able to interact with more and more mentors. Um, especially mentors that kind of made meant a great deal to me and that really changed the way that I see the world. I value those revelations so incredibly much that I want to pass on the same, I want to pass on the same experience to others. Um, and of course, that's not to say that everyone that enters a class that I teach or that experiences kind of a curriculum that I'm developing at UCLA will feel this way. Of course, most won't, um, but it just takes, you know, a slight little revelation, a slight little epiphany to sometimes really have a, a very firm impact on the the entire worldview of a group of students or um, the way that someone sees their place in the larger realm of human existence and kind of how maybe ways that you, you never imagined that people can think before all of a sudden you see, oh, wait, no, that's a that's a real alternative possible existence that I was never able to conceive of before. And that's kind of, you know, it's adding like another diversity narrative to your, to your available kind of, um, what's the word for it? Um, maybe to your kind of your, your totality of, of human possibility. And, and I think that's an incredibly valuable thing. And it also serves people very well because it helps them understand the world better. It helps them get along with people. Better. No, I completely agree. And obviously, you know, it's super gratifying to hear another human who finds both uh, like mentorship, but also just the love of teaching. And I mean, it, it's just so wonderful to hear that that is playing like a foundational um, role in, in kind of shaping who you are and just both personally and professionally. Cause I think, you know, those two things are super, super important to me as well. Teaching and mentorship kind of go hand in hand. And um, I think we all can look back and say, Oh yes, this teacher was like instrumental to me or, or a few people. Um, and, and so kind of with this love of teaching, but also being a mentor, I mean, I'm curious, do you, did your family have a good grasp on, on like what it is you're doing when you were really getting into it? Or do you struggle with the same thing where if I were to ask either of my parents or, or my sisters, let's say, you know, oh, so yes, I'm a classicist. What do you think I do? I'm going to get everything but the right answer. Um, and so a lot of me wanting to share and teach and educate people about what it is that I'm into comes from honestly having to have this conversation with my family because they literally don't understand it. So was it a similar thing for you where you started with just having to educate the family, the people closest to you? Yeah, I will say that my family situation in this regard is difficult. And my experience has been, I, I'd say initially no, because for some reason, I think I assumed that while I would explain to my parents kind of what I did, and I think they still have a very good idea of what I do. We never really talked, and this is probably looking back on it, this is something that I would have liked to, to remedy, uh, but I never really explained to them why I do what I do. And so I just assumed that as, well, of course, this was still kind of, I was still learning about this as well and still kind of formulating this. But as I continued to grow and kind of understand this, I don't, I was not in dialogue with my family about this. And so then when all of a sudden in, you know, like 
2016, 2020, when we're having all of a sudden these conversations, you realize how far apart we've moved on some very key issues, um, which has, you know, put a, put a, I don't want to say a strain on our relationship, but it has caused tension in sometimes. But I guess I would say my parents were always very supportive and I was always very lucky to have them. I wish I had done more, including them in the discussion of why I do what I do rather than just what I'm doing. No, I mean, I think that's really valid. Um, you know, I would say with my parents, uh, I, you know, I'm one of the lucky ones, I guess, where nothing was too contentious. But at the same time, yeah, I didn't really do a good job of including them in the why either. Um, even to this day, if I were to just be like, hey, mom, dad, tell people what I do, they'd be like, well, she likes ancient Greece. And we know that she just, she, she's really passionate about it because she, there's something about the culture that she likes or, or so, some generic answer like that. And I was like, oh, okay. That's not, I guess, what I would want them telling people. But I don't know. Do you think that stems from kind of like almost the way that Kara would say, I know she, she says this a lot on, in her talks or on her podcast, but um, the whole, you know, this is like, asking someone who studies the ancient world you know why do they love it is some question that we would never ask each other because we know you can't really ever answer it to like a I guess I don't want to say satisfactory but like you can't ever really answer that um to make someone who's not also with that same level of passion um you know, you, you can't get to that level. You know, I'm not sure about that. I think there is a way to explain, because if you focus in on the facts, I agree that people are going to be kind of, oh, well, like, I don't really understand why these, why these facts? Why not some other facts? There are plenty of facts that we live with. But when you kind of talk more about, or try to parse out for oneself also, um, kind of, why these facts are personally meaningful for you. If you could bring in your own emotions, your own passions, your vulnerabilities, I think this is a way of having this kind of conversation that can be accessible or that can connect with someone that has never seen any value on, in the ancient world or never been exposed to it or um, kind of just has no clue of where to begin. I think this is a good place to be. Yeah, okay. And I guess since, well, it's perfect. Okay, so if that, you know, is something that we can work on to get better, to, to maybe make it so it's easier to explain to people the the why and the how and, and all the, the good questions that people will ask, what is something I guess we can do as scholars to make it easier? You know, is it just bumping up accessibility? Like, you know, what are some of the things we could be actively working on um, to make it easier for ourselves, but also for other people? I think the most important thing to work on is ourselves. Um, I think that's always first and foremost in the equation. And I think if you're working on yourself, when you're working on yourself, and then you realize that there is this need, this imperative, especially when we're sequestered to some extent in the university community, that this is not satisfactory and that there must be some kind of outlet that then the outlets that people are going to find are all going to be individual it could stem from having a conversation at a party it could stem to reaching out to a local high school um, and offering to kind of give give a talk um, it might be a request to give a guest lecture somewhere or it might be a whole series of kind of community outreach programs. Um, so, and, and really all of these are valuable. 
And I think as long as you're doing some of it, that's the important thing. The other just unfortunate reality of, of our existence, especially at the university level these days, is that the duties and responsibilities of professors, especially assistant, associate, and full professors, have multiplied dramatically in the last 40 years, I'd say. Or to some degree, there is this recognition that we need to be doing so much more. But at the same time, and the universities continue to say that these are priorities, but don't then structurally want to change themselves to allow these priorities to go forward. So I think one of the most important things for me, looking at the way that the university is structured, is that the emphasis on publications must be diminished to some extent. Um, if you want people to do the service that is that is required um, to have the university flourish in tandem with the community in which is the communities in which it is embedded, I think there needs to be some kind of reduction on the responsibilities of those professors. And I think publications is one of the easiest places because looking at the job market, looking at my colleagues, you know, some colleagues that have five meh publications versus one really good publication, sometimes the five wins out over the one. Um, and then also then I see colleagues that are really trying to do amazing work uh, in their careers, but are just so overwhelmed and so exhausted. So I really wish that the university infrastructure would take a look at what is, if they want to accomplish the goals that they would like to accomplish, what is then actually necessary to... Oh, them? I completely agree. Um, you know, I, I've had for quite a long time now a, a really big problem with the way that, honestly, just academia is structured for people who are actually trying to, you know, do good things. Like, of course, we, we always do kind of want more researchers to learn more things um, and dig deeper. But at the same time... Um, I, I think it's a thing at all universities, but they call it different things. But um, we had a track at Mizzou that was just teaching professor, right? So these are people that probably are never going to be tenured. Um, their job performance is not rated on how much they publish. Like, oh, I, I think there's there's a bit of a publication emphasis, but like most of it is like, how many classes are they teaching? Are they getting like good performance reviews or whatever um, on, on their teaching? And I saw that like people would actively sort of work to devalue the teaching professor track and just be like, oh, well, they're just people who come in, give lectures and that's all they do. And this is so unimportant because, you know, they're not worth investing in or something. And they're probably also paid a ridiculously low salary. Oh yeah, no, it's like a horrible system. And I'm like, but these are the people who are actually teaching us, the young people. Um, this is a problem because I'm sorry, but like, let's be real. 80% of people who are not going to go on academia are probably never going to write, like read that super dry academic tome that you publish or even like a dry, you know, journal article or something, unless you're really, really into that. Or even if the tome is super interesting and the academic article is super engaging, a lot of times it's so technical that it's you know, not that, uh, it's just inaccessible. In some yeah. Ways. I mean, and I think it's just, it's a, it's a larger problem. And as you were saying, I mean, the other problem with universities is that there's always massive inequity, even within the ancient fields. Um, and you know, I, even at UCLA, I've noticed the classics department is pretty big. 
and we seem to have one person doing the entire continent of Africa. Could that be true? <laughs> okay. I was like, look, man, I'm a classicist and I'm always like, yay, more classicists, but I'm also like, but again, one person for an entire continent is a little ridiculous. So we're all supposed to be equal, but like there's inequities within the supposedly equal system. And the, the ancient Americas are also underrepresented. Oh, I'm sure there's what, one, two, maybe three people doing that. I mean, it's sad, you know, and everyone's talking about, oh, yeah, but all ancient studies are so super valuable. But then why do they not really get people? And it's only these bastions of, you know, colonialism, you know, the ancient Greeces and the Romes and to an extent, the Egypts that get all the, the, the resources. No, at the same time, I will 100% give the Classics Department at UCLA. I, I, they're, they're amazing colleagues, and they are doing so much work on these very questions. And so at the same time, it's not, it, it, there is an inequity, but they're addressing the inequity. And you need more people to address some inequities sometimes. And so I think the idea is that we're all kind of working together toward the same goal and that by kind of looking at the, the history of what we previously thought was the most critical and perhaps the only way of looking at the ancient world, will eventually, in doing so, uh, kind of spread, the, spread the, the, the love around to other areas of the world. Um, so I think that's, that's at least my hope. It's true, and I, and I am very happy when I see people kind of speaking up and trying to rectify the situation, obviously, from within the system, which is always going to be a bit easier than coming from outside of it. Even though people are working to address it when it comes to getting resources, the few that there are, you know, that's not to say that they would be unhappy if they cut a few classics positions to try to shift them to other places uh but that's a, that's not unique to ucla that's that's an everywhere problem oh yes we want to stick up for it, create more positions fight for it but if it comes to you know okay you know relinquish you know three professorships and give it to somebody else then they're like whoa whoa no wait what do you mean um so so it's hard and, and the, the field of classics is also under attack from you know from two directions one you have intent on kind of limiting the discussion of what classics is and kind of you know re re mandating the importance of the western the western canon i'm making air quotes that your listeners can't see um so that's on the one side and then the other side it's you know this idea that that the ancient world is not valuable and so that's why you're seeing entire departments up and being eliminated and that's a very serious thing that's something to be very concerned about yeah i mean talk about being between a rock and a hard place um but you know i think that you have a very unique perspective where you are here at UCLA especially with working with you know getting global antiquity um up running and and, and doing great things um i think I mean, I know when I first heard about something that was going to be called the Institute for the Study of Global Antiquity, I, I immediately was drawn in and I was like, oh, what is this? Is this going to be super interdisciplinary? Are we finally going to work, you know, all kind of with our other ancient world colleagues to rectify some of these questions? And and so from your position, you know, is there anything you can you can tell us about, you know, how that's going and, and you know, the the unique complexities also of what you're trying to do um, because it could be a great bl blueprint for other universities going forward. Yeah, of course. Well, so let me, let me back up perhaps a little bit and just talk first about what I do at UCLA and what my position is, because again, this, this kind of will illuminate several of my comments or shed light on some of my earlier comments. Um, so I'm not a tenure track professor. I entered as a lecturer. So exactly kind of that teaching faculty mentality um, and then was lucky enough to 
get a, a position um, at the tail end of the pandemic that was an academic administrator position. So this title is, is a UC specific title. Um, it would mean something elsewhere. But the, what, the thing that it means for me, fortunately, is that I'm both an academic and an administrator. So I'm not only an, I am an administrator to academics, but in, with the idea of facilitating research and then I'm also still faculty. So I get to kind of have my toe in both worlds, which is very nice. And so I still continue to, to do some teaching. And then um, as part of my administrative duties, I assist faculty with grant writing and then also help the uh, a governance board kind of run the, the, the new Global Antiquity Initiative. And so what global antiquity essentially is, and this is why I think UCLA is so special. Um, and maybe it's a part of just being on the West Coast and kind of not, um, a bit more, you know, where you kind of have to chart your own course a bit more than if you were on the East Coast, because then you're also in the, the, the sphere of the European academic world still, whereas we are pretty far removed from, from that just geographically. And so we have, just as the conversation that we're having, um, where it's kind of, we're reflecting on the history of our disciplines, why we're doing what we're doing, I think the understanding of the, 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 the inception of global antiquity was looking at the ancient studies community at UCLA and seeing that we're all asking these questions. And uh, we, wrote, we were previously asking them, you know, with our disciplines in mind only. And so the idea behind global antiquity is to create a forum, a new forum, in which to provide a space where we can have these conversations in dialogue with one another. And when I talk about what these conversations are, like I can be a bit more specific, but again, to understand kind of not only the, the disciplinary history of our fields, but to say, okay, well then what are, how do the ways in which we shape the ancient world academically, how are those still relevant today? And how can the ancient world serve our communities in the present? So one of the, the, the reason that we're global antiquity is not because we're advocating for a certain a breed of globalism, um, but rather we are looking at human interactions as a connected expanse. So a lot of people, you know, you might try to draw a circle around what is Greece and is not Greece. Um, you might try to draw a circle around what is Egypt and what is not Egypt, especially people have tried to do this a lot uh, in terms of Egypt's relation to Africa, su surprisingly or not so surprisingly. Um, and essentially, global antiquity is saying that there's no circle to draw around. Like you can't, you can't actually draw a circle um, because humans are more complex than that. Human interaction has always been more complex than that, and people have always been living in what we could call an entangled, uh, an entangled environment where you are never all one thing. You always have multiple identities, and so then using this as a foundational perspective to look at the past. How do we then understand the benefits of diversity? I mean, I think it's such a great initiative. I'm obviously super excited to be out at UCLA so I can see kind of how it's, you know, getting off the ground and, and, and um, you know, stay informed and stuff. And I, and I hope it becomes a nice blueprint that other universities will copy because I, I really do think that, you know, what we're doing here will help the, these conversations that we're having everywhere, not even in this country, but like in every country. Um, because obviously these, these problems that we, we always keep coming back to, I mean, they're, they're, they're huge and they're not easily answered. Um, 
and and I think it will take a a collective approach because we can't possibly solve these problems alone. Because if we do, then obviously you're going to probably fall into a pattern of trying to protect your own discipline, which then again perpetuates that inequity within the ancient studies, which are all kind of at a disadvantage. So it's it's just such an interesting thing that you're a part of. And obviously, I hope that all my listeners will take an interest and in, in follow uh, what's happening out here at UCLA, because um, I think exciting things are happening. But I wanted to quickly ask you, because as an Egyptologist, it's impossible not to ask you, There are a lot of shitty Egyptian movies and a lot of shitty movies that portray Egypt as in ruins and dying and terrible. um, And some are just plain strange. You know, is there a film, TV show, something that you think from your scholarly opinion is pretty good, actually? Or are they all just commercial shit that, you know is terrible. I would not say from a scholarly perspective, but I will say that I continue to enjoy the original 1999 Mummy, I think, with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz. Just because, again, there are, you know, looking at it from 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 our, our current viewpoint, like, yes, there are inequities in casting and things like that. I think that could be said. But there's also not this kind of desire to... There's not as... as or I should say that if you look at the way what the movie is doing, the movie is not kind of creating this weird hierarchy of who owns Egypt or who should be uh, controlling it or kind of what Egypt... There's not really an attempt to define what Egypt was and should be. It's more of just kind of fun. It's more of just kind of camp and taking these stereotypes and magnifying them in a way that kind of cracks cracks jokes about them and makes fun of them. Um, so like, for example, even the colonialist stereotypes um, get kind of, uh, they, they get jabs into them. Um, and again, they're not, they're, this is always the issue with humor. Like, you know, humor can function either way, either to, deconstruct or legitimize a system of power. Um, so it, it, not that everything humorous is always good, but I do enjoy The Mummy uh, still because of that way. But again, I would not say it's an entirely academic impulse. Um, I mean, I guess, I mean, well, the casting needs to be talked about, but I mean, I really always love the Elizabeth Taylor Cleopatra. Um, yeah, you know, I've had I've had some good experiences with that. Like, for example on an Egypt air flight from Cairo to London. I think the movie's like four hours and the flight was like five hours. And so that was a great experience watching that on the the plane. Well, there's so many anachronisms with that. I mean, when she's wheeled into Rome to see Caesar and she's on this like platform and they take her down, you can clearly tell it's got a very modern mechanism where the the platform doesn't tip over and she can still sit straight. And I was like, that that didn't exist, guys. Um, But... You know, that wasn't quite as bad as like, did you see that god awful Gods of Egypt movie where they cast like literally everybody except real Egyptian people? Yes. Um, I, I didn't see the full movie. And from the bits I saw, I do not need to. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 like I think I said it's um Transformers set in Egyptian mythology. But it's not even fun. Like I, I like I expected it at least to be fun and it's it's not fun. But again, this is this is more of a critique of I think the the we're we're leaning more towards now critique of the contemporary film industry and 
the management or mismanagement of the the feedback that they've been receiving. And um, I mean, let, let's just say the most profitable movies of this year will probably be the Super Mario Brothers movie and the Barbie movie. What is this saying about the state of art and cinema? And um, and also, but again, how the, the not only the changing face of kind of the new priorities that are being that are being uh, promoted within the, the realm of making art, but also just how the movie industry is having to respond to the proliferation of visual uh, video media um, in the world. No, it's true. It's true. I mean, it, it's kind of one of those you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, because it's like even the, the the controversy right over the new docu drama Cleopatra on Netflix you know everyone's up in arms ah they cast Jada Pinkett Smith and she wasn't black and now we're pissed and I'm like well she wasn't like milk white either and Elizabeth Taylor was what do you want you know um yeah it's that 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 conversation has gotten really ugly and I understand the Egyptian perspective um because again so Again, like my, my my whole thing is that you have kind of the Egyptians pushing against back against the black representation and then counter response um, by some members of, of other communities that kind of tries to take then modern Egypt away from modern Egyptians. And really the whole problem is still white supremacist hierarchies. And I wish that both of these groups would frame their discussions in kind of the colonialist white supremacist critiques rather than um, kind of the more the more targeted uh, kind of narrower focused critiques. Um, I think that would be more productive, be more helpful. But um, but again, it shows kind of the weird ways that these ideas can can get into everyone and uh, they, the, the ways that we still live with them today. Yeah, I mean, and I'm of the opinion, honestly, that film and TV is just such a bad way because you know that at the end of the day, they're answerable to you know, what What can you do at the box office? You know, who are you catering to? Um, which is why, honestly, like, it's still not right, completely accurate. But, um, you know, I still think video gaming, honestly, is like the platform where you're probably going to get to be a little more precise about things. Um, you know, just evidenced by like the Assassin's Creed uh fanaticism i love video games i think some of the most important artistic expressions these days is done in video game format um and some of the most powerful teaching tools are are done in a video game or created in a video game landscape so i I, i'm so i'm i'm on board with this lexi like i'd love to kind of continue to explore this um i wish i had some kind of programming background or knowledge and i have absolutely none so so i can only consume i cannot guide (laughs) Fine. That's why we need Archeo gamers who can meld the worlds. We need more Archeo gamers. We need more game devs who want to work with historians and vice versa. And it's it's always shocking that there aren't there isn't more appetite because for the few things we do have and the few series that do history really well, I'm like, this is this is your blueprint. What more do you need? I mean, I think I saw some like just crazy statistic where I think I saw that Assassin's Creed Valhalla, the new Vikings game it was the highest selling Assassin's Creed game of all time. And one of the best selling triple a games of all time, it grossed X amount of billion people. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. And they made it with historians. So like, uh, guys, guys, come on, let's, 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 let's go. Although I'm very, so if you look around at popular culture, there's a lot of kind of Viking things that are very big in. And I don't think it's an accident because I think this is like, 
this is one of the last spheres where angry white people are still kind of acceptable. It's like, because again, there's like this historical accuracy behind it. Um, and so like, I'm always suspicious of the Viking stuff because of that. And also if you look at, if you look just also like the history of like anti-Semitism and um, Aryan studies and the role that like uh, Nordic cultures have kind of played in these, you can see there, there's something going on there. No, I mean, and it's true. And actually that's why I'm, I'm more motivated to honestly get into great conversations with colleagues who study like old Norse studies. But I mean, obviously we could talk about the modern you, you know reception in in video gaming and tv and film forever but obviously you and i would be dead if we tried to go on and on um so i want to ask you just couple, last couple of questions to end sort of the interview portion of the podcast uh the first is when you were an undergrad or, or a grad student did you attend office hours i did i did attend office hours um but you know the funny thing is i can't remember actually being like, oh, you're, when are your office hours? I'm going to show up. I just showed up, I think. I I, I don't think I, I paid attention to the office hours. I think I was that annoying where I just showed up. Um, maybe with the except when I took Greek, which I was not the best at. I think that's when I went to like official office hours because I was like, I officially need help. But other than that, I was just annoyed. Nice. Uh, well, from all these wonderful times that you did both formally or informally, either one, do you have like a favorite memory or conversation experience that you had during one of these office hours whether informal or formal yes um and it's not it's i wouldn't say it's a favorite but it's a memory that has stuck with me because i think it was really a eye-opening moment for how young i was i would i think looking now i will say how young i was but back then i would say probably how little I knew and how inexperienced I was or how uh, inadequate. Uh, but again, now that I look back on it, I'm like, no, I was just a child. But I remember that I was discussing my senior thesis. So we all had to write senior theses. Um, and mine was on the city of Amarna. And it was advised by a brilliant scholar named uh, Beata pongratz Leiston, who's now at ISAW in, in New York. And she's an ancient Near Eastern um, philologist and historian of religion. So even though I did Egypt, she did kind of mostly Assyria, but Babylonia, like that kind of region of the world. I'd always go in with work that I thought was perfectly adequate and like, oh, I, I did all the things. I checked all, all the boxes, you know, like, OK, like you make make one or two changes and then tell me, send me on my way. And I remember she we would always have meetings on Sunday mornings in a cafe uh, near campus. So it wasn't it wasn't in her office or anything like that. It was near campus. And I just remember um, kind of sitting down with her and kind of getting feedback from her, which again, as 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 usual, was more more critical than I would have liked, but but 100% accurate. And and looking back on it, really encouraging me to to be the best that academic that I could be. And I remember just kind of getting into a really interesting discussion with her and asking her this like really challenging question. I forget what it was, but basically like, well, if that's the case, then how can we even start to think about this or talk about this. And I remember she just kind of looked at me and then looked away and closed her eyes and then maybe took like five seconds and then opened her eyes and turned back and looked at me and just kind of like said something brilliant. And I was just like, wow, this is, this is an incredible, this is an incredible moment that I've just had. I love that. I wish, I, I wish I had something that brilliant. I, 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 
not unfortunately, but um, yeah, most of my memories just revolve around I would go sit in my favorite professor's office because she had a chocolate drawer and I would just go eat copious amounts of chocolate and she would, and honestly, like, the the funniest thing that always stood out was that I was just talking to her about difficulties of my undergrad life and, ooh, woe is me, something was hard. And I ended up somehow complaining about jobs and money and not knowing how to function as an adult. And it ended basically with her offering to show me, teach me how to file taxes. And I was like, yep, let's do it. Sure. Thank you. Honestly, that's a valuable lesson. That's, that's education right there. So as an educator yourself now, um, you know, you, you've seen both sides of it. So if you were to give a, you know, one minute elevator pitch to students, why is it important or just a good idea to go to office hours? It's important to go to office hours because it helps you get the most out of your experience. And now I'm talking to the student like they're a consumer, which is increasingly the way that students are framed in the in the university setting. So, but if that's the case, then I will then I will pitch accordingly. Um, you are investing in your future. And especially when it comes to the humanities, the more you can know about the multiple possibilities of human existence, the better off you're going to be in this kind of tumultuous sea of, of our, of our existence. Um, and there's no better way. We, a lot of times we pretend that, um, that scholarship and academia is just about uh, the logos is just about logic and office hours. The more you get to know your professor and you get to talk to them and hear what their passions are and share yours, you realize that this is only really one of the equation, that there is emotion and feeling in it as well. And that this needs to, you need to learn to blend the two together and understand how your emotional side, your sensing side, or your sensibility side and your sensing side are, are working together. And that this is, I think, the way to uh, not only be successful, but also just be a happy person. No, I totally agree. Um, also, just, you know, get to know your professors. Like, I, I don't know why, but I feel like a lot of undergrads these days there's just like this aura around, oh, they're the professor. So they're like older, they have knowledge, but also why would they want to talk to me? They're a bit scary if you happen to have like a scary professor. Um, but just go talk to them because they're people too. Um, and, you know, they they like talking to people. <laughs> As, to quote my, my therapist, never make a decision based on fear. If you're afraid of doing something or you want to do something, but you're afraid of it, then don't let that stop you. So at the end of the podcast, I have every guest read Shelley's beautiful Ozymandias poem. So if you could just read it for us and then afterwards, if you could give us your thoughts on, you know, why do people seem to really love this poem? Why do they think it's so important and um, transcends kind of different generations you know types of people um you know we we talk we talk about this poem as being like amazing so it's like why do you think that is yeah no i'd be happy to um so i i, I do confess that i memorized this poem when i was in seventh grade because i had to um but now i have to read it because my memory is not that good so um i'll get started hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f are you talking about you insane hollywood ass 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well those passions read which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So my first reaction to this always has to be, well, it's always has to be philological. And I, we have to talk about how Ozymandias uh, is a version of the throne name of Ramses II, Usur Ma'atra, um, something like um Ray is powerful of Ma'at, something like that. Um, so that's where this comes from. And of course, that's that's my primary instinct. Um, but why I like this poem, what do I think is... And again, there's a lot of... This poem is, I think, as all poetry is, multivocalic. So you can kind of read this and see meaning uh, however you want to. Um, I The thing that I like about it, especially these days, is you see, one, that everything is uh, ephemeral that uh, no matter what is the situation, that no matter what and how long things seem to be going on, that the basic inevitable truth of things is that it will pass. Um, and it will pass not necessarily in the way that you want it to. It will decay, all things decay, but that's fine. Um, that's part of existence as well. Um, the other thing that I like about it is no matter how authoritarian or how much strength a uh, a 
or how much fear a government is able to wield or a politician is able to wield, um, that too is ephemeral and that too shall pass. I completely agree because I always talk about it's, you know, um, ephemeral nature of political power and it is through that acting as a memento mori right a reminder we will die what i think is interesting though it's and what i love about it it's it's not even just political power it's power in general and kind of how the structures of power that you think you're going to live and die by for eternity how the very vocabulary of these is totally ephemeral um, and we're seeing this even more, we're seeing things change even more quickly uh, since, you know, the, the, the emergence of the internet and, and kind of the mass media as, as, a, as a truth of our daily lives. And I think that's going to just continue. So the, the trick is going to be how we find meaning within this new landscape. But you cannot then, you cannot then try to re-erect the statue of Ozymandias. It's already gone. Uh, so you have to just kind of adapt to your present and move on. It's important to remember both, you know, the time ostensibly that they're talking about. You know, this is a pharaoh who thought his civilization would remain powerful in the way it was for. Is it is is it um, too dramatic to say eternity? I don't. I mean, we could say a hundred years, thousand years, but no. I mean, literally in in inscriptions they say for eternity and forever, for cyclical eternity and linear eternity. They say both of these things in all of these texts. So they really wanted to perpetuate this forever. And, and you know, even if we're look, talking about Ozymandias or Ramses and you showed him the world, he would be so, I think, heartbroken in a way um, because he would just see, he would recognize nothing. And I kind of love that. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And then, of course, there's the added dimension of when was Percy Shelley writing this in 1818 when Egyptomania was like at its height? And I think I, I think um, he composed this poem based off of the statue that he knew was on its way from Egypt to London to be in the British Museum. Like, I think he, he knew that there was this broken statue coming and was so inspired. And then he sees it and then writes the thing. And Well, and then also to, to add on to it, though, the extra complication is that, you know, we do have these monumental statues of Ramses II in uh, Luck, one, one in the Ramesseum in Luxor. And then uh, there's another in, in uh, Memphis in, in the Cairo area. Um, and it's very possible that these statues are reused. They might have been Colossi of Amenhotep III that Ramses II recarved. Um, so look on, look on his work, ye mighty, and, and indeed despair. <laughs> <laughs> despair and maybe question? Question mark? Despair in knowing that even the most aggrandizing claims that someone can make, if, it, if it's too good to be true, it probably is. Probably is. Oh, what a lesson we can still take today and be like, yeah, that applies to so many things. Yeah, I mean, looking at the political dimension, especially of it, um, you know, the, the, the last question I really ask every single guest is, if we consider our society today, is there like a modern Ozymandias? You know, it could be person, idea, system and anything but something that we thought is like so great and amazing and we think it's going to last for eternity and then like we will be you know eyeballing this let's just be generous and say 300 years from now and is it really that great i'm not sure if i would say is it really that great but kind of like we think something that's going to be around forever that can easily just fall away um obviously democracy is kind of the easiest answer there um but then uh what if maybe just because I've, I've mentioned it a few times, maybe the internet. We think the internet is going to just kind of just be this independent thing that is just 
forever around us, but but it really is not going to take a lot to to uh, of of kind of damage to infrastructure, damage to kind of global networks to sever this kind of thing. And then all of this knowledge that is stored there is going to just be kind of gone. And I think that's that's actually scary for me. Yeah, I mean, you know, we think of the internet as just this big encompassing thing, the connectivity, but I'm also like, LOL, the entire internet runs on a few massive servers. And what if those were to like be destroyed or short-circuited? Everything goes away. So it does bring a new level of meaning to when people are like, don't put this on the internet, kids, because it's forever. I'm like, but is it? Like that embarrassing video you had from like, 30 years ago i mean okay maybe in the next hundred years it's still around so yeah it's pretty permanent but in like a thousand i don't know man that, that that's gonna be the one thing that survives embarrassing videos is gonna be everything else is gonna collapse but embarrassing videos that's gonna be like the fail video the fail video genre is gonna be the one thing that transcends the apocalypse oh my gosh could you imagine what if aliens find our culture when we've like destroyed ourselves and all they see is um like bad cat memes or america's you know, funniest home videos. And that's all they have to judge our entire civilization on. Look, if it's bad cat memes, I'm happy with that legacy. Actually, you're right. That wouldn't be that bad. Um, I'd much rather have that than, than other levels of human stupidity. So actually, maybe we're not all completely doomed. So so we'll we'll hope that I guess the internet sort of stays around because I'd like to not lose everything. Um, but yeah. So, okay, I kind of lied. There is one more question I'm going to ask you, but it's really easy. And it's, where can people find you if they want to either email you because they're interested in, you know, coming to UCLA, taking a class, if just learning more about your research, uh, learning more about global antiquity, um, or, or just even seeing anything you're going to publish in the future? Yeah, so uh, people can find... Um... I don't think I have a lot of publications on my academia profile, but if they're interested, I'm happy to kind of uh, give them, you know, proofs or, or whatever I have access to that I'm allowed to share. Um, the easiest way to find me is probably just to Google my name in plus UCLA. And then first you'll get the NELP department, the Department of New Eastern Languages and Cultures, that has my contact info. Um, in the next few days, hopefully, the next few weeks, uh, I've, we've created a website for Global Antiquity. Um, and uh, that should be up very shortly. So hopefully that will also now ping a search result and um, we'll, we'll get that up and running shortly. And then I'm all, I'm all over that. Like literally on every page of that website is my contact information. So that's, a, that's, that's, if you found that, you could definitely get in touch with me. Excellent. Well, we will make sure to put any relevant links in the show notes so people can go to that and find you and ask you all the wonderful questions, which we hope you will get. Um, and yeah, I mean, thanks again for coming to talk on the podcast. Uh, I was super excited to make this happen. So glad it worked. No, thank you so much for having me. This is a blast. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. the soft 
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.